Good morning. Okay, there's no PowerPoint today. There's not much in your sermon notes. You're welcome to write down anything you think is worth writing down that you might hear today in there. Um, And I hope there are some things. We're going to talk today about the greatest day. Next Sunday, I believe, begins Advent. And in Advent, we, we, we recall the period of time where Israel, for the centuries, over the centuries, longed for their coming Messiah long for him to come, and uh, their long and maybe sometimes patient wait for his first coming. And yet we find ourselves as Christians in this age in the same place, do we not? Are we not longing for the Messiah to come? Are we not marking the time and, and looking for the day when he will come? The first coming has been called the greatest event in history, Um, whether you refer to his birth or his death or his resurrection, all of it together. And I think that's absolutely got to be true, right? The greatest event in history was the first coming of our Savior to accomplish his work for us uh, as he did. And, uh, And yet, the greatest day, I think a case could easily be made that the greatest day will be his return. Because on that day, every single person will see him. And he will be revealed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords that he really and truly is. Uh, Reality that was veiled at the time of his first coming. Pat pointed out how the word gospel was used in the first century. I remember him saying something about it was uh, the good news of a new king, the reign of a new king being established, maybe an emperor in the Roman Empire. And uh, we refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ quite frequently And we think about that which he accomplished for us in that first coming, don't we? But if you think about it in the terms of how Pat said the word was used about the presentation of a king, the gospel of Jesus Christ has everything to do with this greatest day, does it not? Has everything to do with him coming and truly taking his kingdom and truly redeeming his creation uh, and calling it his own. And that is what we're going to look at today. Let's pray. Lord, as we read and study your word together today, open our understanding. Plant your desire, your desires and your power to do your will into us. Use me, Lord, to accurately convey your truth, but also allow any weakness or error in me to display your glory and refine your body, the church, as we pursue you together. Amen. Okay, we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 3. If I'm not mistaken, it's 12, page 1217 in the Pew Bible. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one, ask, this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, the Lord, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away, and a roar with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. <clears throat> Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also in the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Growing up in the 1970s, there was a great, I remember a great deal of talk about the second coming of Christ or the end, the end of the world. You know, we lived in that time under the continual fear of the threat of the end of the world by nuclear destruction. Does anybody, who remembers that? Yeah, I mean, in school, we could go under our desks in case of a, of a, a drill as if that was going to make any difference, but we had nuclear attack drills in school. And uh, I remember I was fascinated by the idea of, not so much of the end of the world, I, that was a pretty scary thought, but by the second coming of Christ. And um, as a person with no personal assurance of salvation at the time and a lot of hopes and dreams for this world, I think I had some trepidation about, you know, well, when is he going to come, you know? And he's not going to come too soon, right? And he's going to give us time, right? And all these thoughts in my head. And uh, I remember I asked my mom one day, when is Jesus going to come back? And, and by, the, by the way, there were people at that time that decided they knew. They were date setters, they were called, you know, and they, they worked out a system and said, this is the day he's coming back. And people who believed in them sold property and made decisions, life decisions, based on these, these uh, predictions. So I asked my mom, and she said, well, he's coming for you for sure within the next 80 to 90 years. <laughs> So that got my attention, and uh, so she said, um, I think she had the, that had the intended effect, and she said, so what did Jesus tell you to do while you're waiting? He said, occupy 
until I come. I think her confidence in my understanding at the age of 10 was a little high, so I don't think I had any idea what she was talking about. But I am very grateful that today we have God's word right here in our hands so that we can understand just what it is that the Lord has, has for us to be occupied with as we wait and we long for his return. The Bible believer should have no doubt about the imminent return of Christ at all. It is written about by every New Testament author, but except for maybe James. I couldn't find it in the book of James. Um, it is mentioned over 1,800 times in the Bible. And the second coming, according to one analysis that I found, the second coming is mentioned eight times more often than the first coming of Christ. Peter presumes we are aware of these things, and he exhorts us in verse 2 to remember the words of the prophets and the apostles. It would be fascinating to study, to, to complete, to compile a study, or at least even a representative sampling of all these references, but that's not what we're going to do today. Uh, the day, though, by the prophets is often referred to as just simply the day of the Lord, an important day, so important that it didn't need a whole lot more qualification than just the day of the Lord. Although there is one place where it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. And for good reason, as we saw in the passage that we just read, it will be a day of a new, and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, yes. But it'll also be a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men and all of the things of this world. In fact, it will be the last day. It'll be the day where the end of the opportunity for decision will come. Humanity's opportunity to choose what they will do what they will believe, who they will trust, will come to an end on that day. So raise your hand if you believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Okay, I can't see anybody not raising their hand, so that's good. That's really good, because Peter's warning us not to expect everyone to believe this. He says mockers or scoffers will come and mock the idea of his coming. He tells us why in verse 3. He says they're following after their own lusts. You see, it's not because of any evidence or lack of evidence or any particular rational argument or reason whatsoever that people would mock at the idea of Christ's return. It's out of simple fear. It's out of simple wishful thinking, a desire to wish away the judgment of a sinful lifestyle that people do not want to relinquish. They don't want to give it up. If we come to terms with the fact that he is coming to judge, it makes a big difference about how we will live our daily life. And these mockers, they're trying to give themselves cover. They're living for self-gratification and loving their sin. They say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it always has. This is a, must be a comforting thought to a skeptic, I suppose, because of how it discounts any supernatural end to this world. They must ignore the evidence to do this, though. And that's what it says here in uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. It says, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. This evidence we have in front of us, right? We're standing on the earth that he created. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So this also, the evidence of the flood is all around the world as well. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
if they accept God's word about having created the world and accept God's word about having destroyed the world once already by flood, then it would be irrational not to accept his word about what the fate of this world is going to be. They have to deny all of it to maintain their way of thinking. They are willfully ignorant of the reality that God did, in fact, judge evil on the earth. By the way, it's not so much like the 70s anymore. At least, I don't feel like I hear a whole lot of talk about the end of the world in the popular culture, even though I think that was the case when I was a kid. There were even books. There was a book written, The Late Great Planet Earth, by a Christian about the end of the world and the coming of Christ, and it was a bestseller. Um, But nowadays, I feel like the scoffers and the skeptics have a different objection. They're no longer saying that Jesus isn't going to return or there's no such thing as the return of Christ. Now they're struggling or they, they present an objection called the problem of evil. Are you guys familiar with this objection? What's the, what's, the, what's the basic question that a skeptic asks today or that they maybe use as a reason not to believe in the God of the Bible? Exactly right, exactly right. That is the known as classic problem of evil, right? If God is good, Sharon said, then why does evil exist? Or why would God allow evil to exist? Or somebody may say it more personally, well, I couldn't believe in a God who would allow such and so to happen. Is, that, is this familiar to people? Okay, <clears throat> good. I think it's the way that the skeptic, I think it's the hiding cover, it's the cover the skeptic commonly uses today. Perhaps this is an indication of how, to the extent that the scoffers have carried the day, that the conversation has shifted. There's no need to scoff at the idea of the second coming if no one's talking about it anymore. Maybe this is an indictment of the church. The culture used to wrestle with the idea of the judgment of God falling on man. Now the culture has turned around and judged God and found him wanting. There's a very great and terrible irony operating here because perhaps counterintuitively, it is actually because God is good that there is evil in the world. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The question isn't, why does God allow evil? But rather, why hasn't God judged this wicked world already? The same faculty that I need to be able to repent and trust in Jesus is the one I can use to to refuse repentance and continue in rebellion against him. It is his mercy that allows me to continue with this faculty to choose or reject him. God delays the judgment out of kindness, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's giving time for man to repent. You know, there was a time when Jesus cho- or where God chose to stop allowing evil in the world. He said, in effect, enough is enough. That time the devastation was total. Everyone not on the ark, every living thing not on the ark perished in the flood. 
I think people will need to be careful about what they ask for. The idea that we would want God to intervene and judge evil ignores the reality of the human heart and the standard of holiness that pertains to our God. Do we presume to tell God which evil he should judge? Do we think we, he should listen to us and judge by our standards? Do we think that we know better than him? Let's look at just two places where God identifies the kinds of evil that he will judge. I'm going to uh, read them to you. I'll look at First um, Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Here Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here in another place, this is Romans chapter 1 in the start of verse 2. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They were gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they, do not, only, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So God is maligned by the scoffing skeptic for not showing up and selectively judging evil when all along what God is really doing is patiently enduring a broken world so that some might come to repentance. A ghastly irony if it were, ever is one, ever was one. This, however, does not mean that all are going to come to repentance. We can see that clearly in this passage in verse 7 when God says that the earth is being reserved for judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Sadly, many have and will live their lives in selfish ambition in a state of rebellion against God, and they will bear the guilt of their own sin on the day of Christ's appearing, and for them it will truly be a terrible day. But having examined the fate of the scoffers and seen what that coming day, that greatest day, will be like for them, let's turn our attention to us, to the church, to those who have claimed that we believe in this return of Christ, that have put our faith and trust in him to cover our sins, who believe and know that in him we have life and that we will rejoice when he appears. Let's look at verses, starting at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, be melt, will melt with intense heat. We have dear friends, Don and Lisa. They, live, or they lived in Paradise, California. And their house was a total loss in the campfire. And my mom lives nearby, and she, uh, Don runs a mechanic shop in, in Chico. And uh, so my mom went to take her car in for repair, and she asked Don how they were doing um, following the fire. And, and uh, Don's answer, when she told it me, this, it made me laugh. He said, I'm doing great. He said, my honeydew list burned down with a house. And now I spend every weekend on the lake with the boys. It reminded me of what Zeke exhorted us to last week, to be sure that we're using things and loving people rather than the other way around. And this is a simple yet profound concept, and it's foundational to our thinking, and it is noteworthy in this passage about how all of these things, these trappings, all these that we touch and see and feel are going to burn. And we need to ask ourselves, are we holding the things of this earth tightly? Or, I'm sorry, are we holding the things of this earth lightly so that we have the capacity and the resources to hold the eternal things tightly? This is the beginning of wisdom in thinking about the return of Christ. So what, people, what sort of people are we to be in terms of holy conduct and godliness? According to verse 12, we should be looking for and perhaps looking forward to his coming. And this is interesting. We should be hastening its coming. We'll be looking further into what that means to, to hasten it. But I think there is a dangerous way of thinking that we can easily fall prey to. It is a selfish way of thinking that, has, that can easily creep in and I think has crept in in some measure into the church. Insofar as we limit the gospel to the idea of personal rescue, we limit it to the idea that I'm saved, I'm in, I got mine, how'd you make out, brother? Insofar as we think of it that way, we have a very selfish and very limited idea of the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that was the way it worked, if it was just about getting us into the kingdom, then why wait? Why not bring me home now? I'm saved. Take me home, Jesus. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's get this over with. Why continue in this broken world of suffering and evil? Something's clearly going on. He's got to be up to something. Otherwise, why not just take us out? As Patty pointed out about the whole thing about the gospel being a, the good news of a, the announcement of a new reign, of a new king, uh, this was certainly true to an extent at Jesus' first coming, but not fully realized until he returns. And at that time, he will judge unrighteousness, destroy the earth, and reign in righteousness. There is so much more to the gospel of Jesus Christ than just our own personal escape from judgment. It is the glorious day of his revealing. It's the glorious day of his reign. The danger I mentioned or I referred to is this. It's that we come so entrenched in the idea that we are the saved and the world is the lost and deserves judgment that we miss the mission that we are saved to do. We, the church, can easily fall into the mindset of the first century Jews. They rejected the Messiah at his first coming because he didn't come in the mold that they were expecting. They wanted him to kick the Romans out. They wanted him to give hegemony to them, the chosen people. They were God's rock stars. Everybody else was God's refuse. They were expecting him to come and 
take them out, God. And they weren't the only ones. James and John fell prey to this. Remember when they called for fire? They said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on the, the Samaritans, these sinners? And they still had this mindset, even after the entirety of the time they spent with Jesus to some extent. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And here's the scene. They, Jesus is about to be ascended into heaven. He's on the mountaintop with them. They know he's about to depart. He spent the entire three years ministry with him. He's now, he's, he's, he's accomplished the redemption on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And they say to him, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know time or epochs, which the, epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So here they are. They still were missing the point. They still wanted him to come and do the divine rescue. Lord, start it now. Get this kingdom going now. But Jesus' plans were much greater. And thank God. Because that part there where it says to the remotest parts of the earth, that's you and me. We are pretty much the remotest part of the earth from Israel, are we not? And thank God for his patience, for his delay, for his forbearance, that he would allow the gospel to reach our ears. And that grace and forbearance continues still. It is very true, the fact that our individual salvation is important and, is big, and it is good news. But the gospel is the glorious appearing of the one who created everything, returning to redeem his creation the entirety of his creation will give him glory by acknowledging him as king, whether or not rejoicing in the fellowship that we have with him as our Lord and Savior or in acknowledging his justice in condemning us to eternity apart from him. Fortunately, Peter refers us to Paul at this point so we can get another perspective on what really is going on here as he says to uh, Paul in many of his writings, makes reference to the same issue. I found one. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Why don't you turn there with me? Paul says, I, and I'm starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires." And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the, fight, the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Hastening his, the day, loving his appearing. Paul very specifically talks to Timothy about the work of being an evangelist, about completing and fulfilling his ministry. The Lord in his patience with the world that needs to repent is also patient with his church as he calls for, longs for, invites us to join him in his work of redemption, laying out for us the work that he has given us to do, creating obstacles in our path that force us into keen relationship with him and force us to choose, are we going to glorify him? Are we going to be a reflection of his light as we encounter difficulties and difficult people? Are we going to use the context of this life that he's given us to illuminate the day, to walk in confidence of our, the idea that he's returning, he's coming for us, and it will be a great or a terrible day? When we look at people, do we rejoice with them as our brother or sister? Because on that day we know we'll be arm in arm, praising and rejoicing at the redemption, realized fully at his return? Or do we look at them, at those who are lost, and we mourn for them? Do we have a heart that aches for them? Do we have a heart of patience towards them like the Lord has, not wanting that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance? I think for the believer that is about these, those things, the day of the Lord is an exciting day, a day to look forward to hearing our Lord say, well done, a good and faithful servant. I think it means to hasten the day, means to live in the confidence of his return because of our confidence in his promise, our confidence in his word, to long for the new heaven and earth where righteousness dwells, as it says in verse 13 of our main passage, to have the mind of God regarding the repentance of the lost and to be occupied with the business of the, with kingdom business discipling souls into his kingdom for his glory. The skeptic rejects God over the prevalence of evil in the world. The church must not reject the world for the same reason. Christ died for this world, and he is delaying his coming for the sake of the lost. The day is coming when God will confirm man's rejection of him by rejecting them, but it is not this day, or at least not yet. <laughs> we are not to hasten the day we are not to hasten the day by surrendering the field and hunkering down to await rescue. We are to hasten it by taking territory for the kingdom one soul at a time. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, I praise and thank you for your word. I praise and thank you for showing up today to exhort us in your word. I pray, Lord, that the reality of who you are and what you have promised you're going to do would electrify our thoughts, would inform our decisions, would arrest our behavior, Lord, when we would do anything, Lord, that would bring dishonor or would perhaps stumble anyone that may be on the path, Lord God, to coming near to you. May they rather, Lord, witness the strength, your strength in us, the strength that comes from trusting and believing you, Lord. May we walk in that confidence regardless of the circumstances around us. And may you be praised in our lives and everything that we do. Thank you, Lord God. And thank you for short sermons. Amen.
Thank you, Lord, that we have 15 songs we can